We uh, have kind of a, a, a rather large and diverse staff for a church the size of scum of the earth. And most of you don't know the guy who's going to be speaking tonight, although I've known him for a few years now. His name is Jeff Warner. Jeff is the, uh, Jeff is the staff guy uh, for Morning Church. And if you've never been to Morning Church, it happens right here about 10.30. Uh, come at 10 o'clock if you want to have breakfast because we serve breakfast uh, before the service on Sunday mornings. And then it's, it's a different animal. It's kind of liturgical, and it's smaller, more intimate, uh, shorter sermon, and a lot more kids uh, than we have per capita at night. Uh, and uh, it's kind of cool. So uh, it's been going for, for a few years now, and uh, Jeff is our mainstay along with the leadership team there. So, so most of you don't know Jeff, but... But Jeff is a man of, of deep theological thought. Uh, if I think uh, if he didn't have the desire to be married and have children, he would have been a, would have been an Orthodox monk. That's what I think. But, you know, some passions are stronger than others. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I, I just wanted to say uh, if you could, you know, be nice to Jeff. It's his first time speaking a whole sermon in front of Night Church. It's a little bit intimidating. Please be kind to uh, my friend and your almost future friend, Jeff Warner. Hello. Whoa. That's a little louder than it was this morning. And that's okay. It needs to be a little lower. The Lord be with you. Yeah, very good. Um, Let me open up with a blessing. Holy Spirit, make alive and also bless our gathering, both speaker and hearer. Fresh from the heart it shall come, and with your help may it also go into our hearts. Amen. Um, Thanks for having me here tonight. Um, I'd like to begin with opening up with a couple of questions. Um, First... Um, I would ask you to um, just call to mind and hold on to your first impression of um, your your knee-jerk reaction, as it were, to uh, when I say the word God. You know, just God. Just hold on to that and, and that reaction and keep it in your mind because that's going to come back to play later, right? Um, 20th century thinker named Martin Buber once uh, said that this word God is the most overburdened and, and possibly the most meaningless word that we have in our, in our language, uh, precisely because it is just so overused and ill-defined. Um, and also on that note, uh, if you go to Din, Din Sim, how many Din Sim people we have here tonight? When I talk about God, you can't say Jesus just because Blomberg's in the room. You have to be honest, okay? Um, and secondly, uh, the second question is, does anybody know who, and you, if you went to morning church this morning, you can't answer this, and, and if you're staff, you can't answer this because you already know what I'm doing. Um, does anybody know what happened, without Googling either, what happened on May 21st, 1980? 
Deva and, and Meg and a bunch of folks that I don't know. What happened on May 21st, 1980? Deva. Well, I already told you, but they didn't know that. So somebody I don't know that raised their hand. What happened on May 21st, 1980? The Challenger. No, that's a popular guess, though. Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> so, yeah, that's cool, right? Well, what about it? What about the Empire Strikes Back? Why do we know this? Well, something happened with the Empire Strikes Back that impacted our culture and has stayed with us. And it impacted us huge when it happened. But now it's a bit of a joke. I am your father. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. And uh, I can't read my own writing here. Heaven help me. Uh, The Empire Strikes Back. Um, This one installment of the entire franchise has impacted us in such a way. And and it's precisely because of that, because that has become such a mainstay in our culture. We've heard it so many times that we almost forget the impact of when we first heard it. So I'm here to refresh you tonight of that impact. If you'll feast your eyes up here. He told me you killed him. No. I am your father. Yes. Me. I'm the reason. No. That's not true. That's impossible. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. No! No! Luke, you can destroy the Emperor. He has foreseen this. It is your destiny. Join me, and together we can rule the galaxy. Yeah, something like that. Very much like that. Um, I saw that uh, when I was a boy, but we're going to take the story back a little further to begin. Um, It was 1977. I was five years old and living in um, a little wide patch in the the dirt um, south of Lubbock, Texas. And uh, and I saw Star Wars for the first time before it was episode anything um, and before it got tweaked with each re-release. It was just Star Wars, and it was just awesome. Um, it just completely reinvented my world and I engaged the world then with a high degree of imagination that I hadn't before and still haven't, I haven't stopped doing that. Um, I would go outside night after night after night to the chagrin of, um, my grandparents who were raising me. Um, and, and they hated this because of what it did to my laundry, right? I would go outside and I would take my jeans and wrap them up and I would stuff them inside my giant tube socks, because this is the 70s still. These huge tube socks with the yellow bands because they closely resembled Luke Skywalker's sand-colored stuff. And, and I would be outside, and I would train to be a Jedi, and I would fight Darth Vader, and I would try to win the heart of the princess, and, and that was disappointing, wasn't it? Right? And see, so you know that one too. It's right to the point. And, uh, and so 1980 comes along, and, uh, and the dynamite that happens when you, when you hear that, it was just shocking, right? Um, 
And so do you remember that feeling? Um, oh, I don't know what that means. It's just, we'll, we'll skip over it then, right? Did it feel like this? Um, James Earl Jones, the guy who does the voice of Darth Vader, um, confessed a few years ago during one of the you know, re-release blitzes. Um, he says, I, I thought Darth Vader was lying when, when he said this to Luke. He says, I thought he was lying to him to get to him to manipulate him into going into the dark side, um, which now has become a joke off of a joke because now you have Stewie Griffin running around in a, in a Darth Vader helmet going, join the dark side, it's really cool. Um, and, and we all know that joke too, right? So what I'm getting at is I'm getting at the point of saturation, the point where we've heard something so much that it, it becomes absolutely meaningless and quite often the butt of jokes. Um, this shame of familiarity, fam familiarity, uh, being with a favorite movie, being with the word God or the word of God, um, maybe... Uh, maybe we just move on to a different phase of life. You know, I did eventually stop being such a Star Wars nerd. Um, I just kind of enjoy the joke now. Um, uh, it may be sin. It may be the cares of this life. I mean, legitimate cares of this life. Family, uh, making a living, caring for, for the sick or, or the poor or whatever. Um, it doesn't always have to be sin, and it doesn't always have to be something profound. Or, I mean, it just it happens, right? Um, what I want to do for you tonight with this text from Philippians is to give, it, give you a fresh look at a passage that if you've been around the church for some time, you've read a whole lot. Um, um, and you may think that it's wonderful, um, but through that familiarity of, of learning good, proper Christian doctrine um, and lifetimes of good teaching, um, it may be somewhat of a big yawn, you know, to, to read the Bible and to read passages like this. Um, and so the message tonight is called The Big Yawn, uh, which is appropriate because I'm shockingly tired going into this. So you may actually see some real yawning. Yeah, <laughs> practicing what you preach right there. Um, so what have we seen so far in Philippians? We're gonna, I'm going to touch very, very briefly um, back on that. Do you guys remember DeWoos? De remember DeWoos up here? Um, do you remember Jesse telling us that we're not cool? Yeah, we're not cool. Um, this is a letter. Philippians is a letter to a local church that wishes to encourage Paul while he's suffering in prison. Um, and I think it's really cool to, to highlight the fact that while he was put into prison and, and beat by the prison guard, the prison guard became a Christian and became one of the, the founding members of the church at Philippi. I mean, that's crazy, right? Um, and so Paul is still suffering in jail, and this church really wants to help him. Um, and his response to them um, up through the beginning of chapter 2 is to tell them that, you know, simply, it's simply encouraging enough to be in fellowship with you. But if you really want to help me, if you really want to do something to help me out and encourage me, and this is where Mike left us last week, um, 
you really want to encourage me in my suffering, be of the same mind with each other. Be of the same mind with each other. Submit yourselves to one another for the good of all. This is what um, Paul is telling him. Do you want to encourage me? Do this. Um, and he said, this is the what I want you to do tonight in 5 through 11. We're going to take a look at why he thinks it's important. And I wouldn't tell you this if it wasn't important and if it doesn't have some really, really big reason why you should do this. And tonight we get to look at that reason. Um, so we're going to look at 5 through 11 with particular emphasis on 5 through 8. Um, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up towards at the end. And just a word as we go into this, this is one of the most densely theological passages in the New Testament. Um, it has been written on countless times and much better than what I have done tonight. Um, this passage was also a hymn sung by the early church. Probably the church in Philippi was singing this piece of scripture before it was written down um, in the form that we have today. Um, and I was the sucker that raised my hand for this job. So have mercy on me. So let's start in verse five. I will read the passage to you and then we will go through it uh, line by line and, uh, and talk about what's going on here. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it, consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form God, um, and this is where it starts to become that theological dense thing I told you about. Being in the form God, this word here, um, translated in English different ways, this Greek word is morphe. Um, and yes, it's, it's spelled pretty much like it sounds. You know, you turn into a different shape, you morph into something. This is word. Morphe. Um, it has the equivocal parallel concept that you sometimes see with it of uh, image or, or icon in Greek, for which I have brought this. We'll get back to this. Um, this word form, morphe, appears together with the word schema. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing these right or not. Um, there are some that I'm just not going to attempt to pronounce. Um, schema, which is fashion or design. 
So what you have, this Christ Jesus, who is in the form and the image and the fashion of God. Um, when these words appear together, they're telling the story of a thing that exists um, and a thing that is put together in such a way that even if no one were around to see it, it would still exist as that. Um, even if no one were around to see it in the beginning before any creation, this thing was existing like this, this Christ Jesus, the very form design and image of God. Now to what we said earlier, um, being in the very form and image of God, what, when I said God and I want to go back to that and visit, you know, what were you thinking? When we talk about God, um, particularly in this culture, we say, give it over to God. Let God do it. Let, you know, whatever, God this and God that. What are, what are we talking about? Um, are we thinking about the big guy in the sky? Are we thinking about this, this very Western concept of a nameless and faceless prime mover that set everything into motion and then has since retreated and is, you know, somehow utterly distant, and by making some sort of clamor, we can get his attention. It is important that when we're talking about this, when we hear Paul talking about Christ is in the form of God, that we understand what God is. In this case, when Paul is talking about God, Paul is referring very specifically to the God of Israel. He is referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, maybe at this point properly, Emmanuel, God is with us, if you like. Um, the God, right? Um, this is the same God of who Je whom Jesus, uh, standing in the temple and answering his critics, and they were saying, by what authority do you do this or whatever? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Um, and Jesus isn't bragging himself. He's linking himself to God, to Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. This is what we're talking about. Back into verse, uh, looks like we're going into verse 6 now. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This word robbery here, this is the word I'm not going to pronounce. Um, robbery. He did not consider it robbery. He did not consider it something to be stolen from God for him to say, I am equal to God. This word carries the connotation of pirate treasure, almost, something that's, stolen and, and clutched very tightly to yourself to protect it. Um, for those of us who are, you know, kind of fantasy nerds, this could be like dragon horde as well. Something's stolen and you're not getting it back. Um, he was God and he used it appropriately, used it appropriately. And um, under the mission of his father, this is very important. Um, he did not use it inappropriately, as we saw in his temptation in the desert when Satan stood before him and said, you know, if, and the Greek there is really more like since, since you are the son of God, you know, turn these stones to bread. There's nothing wrong with it. You can do it. Um, but it wasn't his mission. He didn't do it in his own self-interest. But he only acted in the interest of his father's mission. And we're going to say a couple of words about this because it is very important. What is the mission of his father? What is the mission of Yahweh that Jesus was on? 
at the time of his visit on earth. Anybody got a shot at that? To seek that which was lost? It's very... Seek and save the lost, yes. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is this mission. To seek and save the lost. If if I'm going to sum it up into one or two statements, um, it is to redeem his people and reclaim his kingdom. This is the mission that Jesus was about. This is the mission that... The church is now about in the world. Jesus was to Israel as churches to the world. If you want to do some excellent studies on this, I suggest a very careful study of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, I suggest a book by a man named N.T. Wright called The Challenge of Jesus. These are very excellent resources to study this concept. Um, Or you may join us after church in the Angel's Den and speak with Dr. Craig Blomberg, about this as well. So Jesus is on his father's mission. Jesus, in the form of God, with all the rights and privileges thereto, will act as God, but only under the mission of his father. Going into verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation. He made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Now, the, the, the literal translation here is he emptied himself, um, which is the, I guess, the working title of this passage um, in, in technical circles. This passage is called the kenosis or the emptying. And uh, he emptied himself. Um, to take on, not exchange for, you know, and not to temporarily become one thing and, and leave behind the other. He emptied himself and took on the form of a human slave. This is literally what this translates to. He took on that form, image, and fashion of a human slave. He now has two natures, fully God and fully man. Being, being him made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of man, going into verse 8, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Now, what's going on here is um, having emptied himself and taking on the form of a human slave, coming in the likeness and founding in the appearance of man, Jesus became... Um, took on the, oh boy. He became Bob Jones of Palestine, okay? There was nothing, and you can see this in Isaiah too, there was nothing about him which would attract us to him. There was nothing kingly about him, though he was a king. There was nothing especially radiantly or or, um, God commanding about him, though he was certainly that. Um, He could pass in a crowd, Um, save for those who could recognize the mission that he was on. He was obedient to this mission, even to the point of the death of a common criminal. Um, Hundreds of people were killed each day. He could have been nailed up just as easily between Frank the robber and Ted the whatever Ted did. Um, It happened all the time, okay? 
and why this is important. He humbled himself into the point of the death of the cross. And what Paul is getting at, and have this, and remember, we're going back to have this mind in yourself, that that which was in Christ Jesus, that whatever rights you have, whatever self-interest that you have, and whatever you might have to gain, legitimately or otherwise, by putting your interest in front of somebody else, submit it. Your example, the Lord Christ Jesus submitted his will um, and he, with all the rights and privileges thereto, submitted that will to the mission of another, in this case being God the Father. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm really cramped for space. Okay. Now back to the emptying. There's one more point I want to touch on in scripture. And that is at John 17, 5. Um, you can turn there with me, or if you don't have it, I'll read it to you. John 17, 5. John 17, 5. This is in Gethsemane. Christ is praying for himself um, as he's looking forward. Well, I don't know, looking forward, but he's facing what is ahead of him. And he prays, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And in this, we start to see a little bit of that you know, that form, that existence that was around before anybody could see it, we start to see that I had something before and I'm reaching out to you to restore me to it. This emptying that, and, and we've touched on it already, but now we're going to come right and talk about it outright. This emptying of God, contrary to what we want it to be, if we want him to be, this high and, and removed God, this, this person that went, as N.T. Wright would say, walking around being God all over the place, um, who would just trance off and, and remember when he heard the distant choirs of angels singing, um, or this Jesus was just a man, and the holy bloodline and, and Jesus is my buddy and, and whatever. Um, neither of those are going to do. Because the emptying of God, I submit, is an emptying of the will, not of the essence. And Jesus the Son, being very equal with God, emptied his will to the will of another. This is what Paul is asking us to do. He is asking us, in the context of a local church, um, and this is the context we're going to discuss it in as we move forward tonight. Submit your will, Paul is telling. Paul tells the Philippians, for the good of one another, for it is the example set for us by Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. And there it is. We have over this series made reference to the mindset that we have in our culture of our rights to this and our rights to that. And, and that's fine. 
you know, that, that's fine. We do have the right um, to not have somebody beat us cruelly over the head. We do have the right to, you know, not starve to death. We, we have these rights, but we also have a lot of privileges. And I think sometimes we can get those confused. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, Mike said this in morning church last week. I don't know if he said it here in the evening, but I'll say it again because it was pretty cool. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This is really good for government, but it's poison to the church. And it's true, you know, and I'm not being unthankful and I'm not advocating a position of that. We should be thankful for where we live, living in a country where we have the right to be here gathered in worship of our king, where we're not having to be afraid of somebody kicking in the door and coming in and threaten to imprison us or worse because we're worshiping Christ. And on that note, I think it's appropriate that you continue to remember our brothers and sisters in Syria um, during this time and the suffering that they're undergoing there um, for just that reason. But as good as that may be, this model, this one explained by Paul and modeled by the Lord himself, is the model for the church. Submission of the will for the good of all. Now, to that... I have to say, and this is, this is part of the story of why I came to Scum of the Earth, is some of you may be here at Scum of the Earth because you came from a church background where submission had been taught, um, or rather enforced. You will submit to what we're teaching. You will submit to what we are practicing. Um, but it became obviously clear that the people that were demanding the submitting were they themselves not submitting to somebody else? This is abuse. This is anti-Christian, and it is anti-biblical. If that has happened to you, I am very, very sorry. Um, it happened to me as well, and it's, it, it's not biblical. I want to assure you, though, that when I or anybody else here at Scum of the Earth is up here talking about submission, we are talking about Biblical, godly submission in the context of we are submitting to one another. I'll tell you a story about when I came here and one of the very first times I met with Mike Sears face-to-face. The first thing he said to me out of his mouth was, would you like some coffee and an apple turnover? Because that's the kind of guy he is. The second thing out of his mouth was, hi, I'm Mike Sears. These are the five people that I am accountable to. This is their job title. And this is how you can reach them anytime you want to. Right? That's a man worth following, don't you think? Um, so please be assured that when we're talking about this here, I mean, this, this, is, um, this is God's word and we're handling it very carefully, okay? You're safe here. Paul is speaking, of course, in the context of a local church which has very real-life concerns. This is not a very big and grandiose thing um, with all of these theological abstracts that we may or may not be able to reach practically. Um, Paul's not talking about this. And, and the things that were going on in the Philippian church, may even not, they may not necessarily concern us. So we're going to talk about the things that go on in Scum of the Earth Church that we can do to live out this model. And it doesn't even have to stop in the walls of this church. This is something that you can do in your marriages and in your families. 
This is something you can do in your friendships, your relationships to one another, submitting your will. These places also, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our families, these places also can become toxically over-familiar, just like the story of Darth Vader. We can become so familiar with each other within these walls um, that we lose the real powerful and, and, and very important thing that we're doing here. Um, this thing right here, this, this icon, and this is from my Orthodox heritage a, little, heritage a little bit. This is called the Icon of Extreme Humility. I don't have to go into much detail about what this is depicting. And a story behind this and of bending my will comes from in 2007, I believe. Uh, my wife and I had not been married quite a year. Um, we had gotten pregnant, and we lost that child. And in the dead of night, one night, just a few nights after this occurrence, um, in the shock and in the sorrow um, and the suffering of the moment, um, in, in the confusion of, I don't know what to do. I simply don't know what to do. Um, I took this thing into my hand and poured out my frustration on it. And after some time and, and, and some pain, because that hurt very much, um, I stopped and I looked at what I was doing. And I supposed that was the point of Jesus, right? The point of submitting the will. And I realized that what I had to do to get through this, I didn't know what I was going to need. I didn't know who was going to take care of me. But what my wife needed for me was to check back in. She needed me to be there for her. I needed to bend my will to take care of her, um, to get up and go back to work and provide for my family and to make sure that people were going to be there to to help us out. Um, and it was a time of great suffering, but I've never forgotten it. Um, within the context of a marriage where it would be so easy to just check out and vanish. Um, so this kind of stuff matters, and you can do it. Um, and hopefully these, these, you know, an example like that is not going to be the case all the time. But some things that go on around a local church that you can participate in is back there, um, and they've talked about it tonight already, I know, but there's a blue-black box for prayer requests right there. And those prayer requests are collected by this gentleman right here, Adam Skinner. And by request, you can get an email weekly with all of these prayer requests. And you don't have to spend, you know, huge amounts of time, three hours a day or every lunch break, agonizing over these prayer requests, but something really good to find out what's going on in your church, you know, where you call home. Read these over. Know what's going on with your people. Find one that, that speaks to your heart particularly, and then pray for it like it's important to you. Pray for it like it's just as important to you as it is to the person who put it in the box. That's how you live this out. There is, in any given week, any number of things that need done. Part of scum of the earth worship is a meal and teaching and worship and all together. 
We always need people to cook meals, breakfast and supper. We need people to clean up after them. We need people to, to clean up after events. Um, the upcoming scum prom, I believe there's a sign up back there for, for helping out with that as well. That's something you can do. Uh, what we need around here at Scum of the Earth, under the mission of Scum of the Earth, a church for the left out, yes? Um, what we need are mentors. We need people to disciple and form and become mentors to people. Grab a Bible and study it. Learn the Bible very, very well, and then teach others to do the same. That's something you can do. We need people to lead small groups and all kinds of things, um, which are usually talked about back there at the scoop, right? We can do this. This is good news, right? And I know that sometimes in the settings of a local church, it can become somewhat of a giant yawn to always hear about the needs of the people or the needs of the church. Um, it can sometimes be good material for the butts of jokes. Um, certainly we remember some of the debacles of televangelism back in the 80s. Um, butts of jokes. More often than not, it can just seem exacer exacerbating. You know, we still need this. Uh, even just this morning after... after trying different ways for weeks to, to encourage people to sign up for breakfast. We still didn't know how to do it. And I would imagine that it's quite taxing sometimes to hear, hey, we need people to sign up. Hey, we need people to sign up. Um, but if each one of us had in our minds, had in our minds the same mind of this Christ Jesus, if we as Christians, each one of us, um, possibly relieved ourselves of the burden or the pressure of, of feeling that since we can't respond to everything, we should respond to nothing. If we, as, as Christians in a toxically consumer-driven culture that's just bent around myself as an individual and my expression and my distinction, if we as Christians in this culture could repent of this incessant need to be distinctive as many times as it takes. And it may be daily and it may be many times a day. Uh, certainly is for me sometimes. Um, to repent and, and break free of this incessant pull of the world we live in and our flesh. Um, and they need to be cool, which if you remember Jesse's sermon, we're not. We're not cool. What difference would that make in the local church and in the kingdom of God if we had that mindset? Now, one final bit. John fifteen thirteen. John fifteen thirteen. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. And of course, I'm talking about the Jungle Book. The Jungle Book. And specifically at the end of the Jungle Book, when the tiger has come and, and all is about to be lost, and, and the, the shiftless silly bear that has 
you know, just otherwise thwarted the efforts of everybody up until this point in the story, finally stands up and fights against the tiger and fights bravely against the tiger and takes a beating and ends up face down in the mud. And the tiger is gone and the storm is over and he's just laying there and and the panther comes up and eulogizes him and says, greater love has no one than this, than the he who lays down his life for a friend. And the final point I want to end with is a bit like the point where we started. We think that we're talking about physical life, but that's too easy. That's not what this passage is saying. Did anybody know that? When it says lay down one's life for his friend, it's not talking about your lub-dub biological life. It's talking about your soul. The word is suke. And this is the place where your priorities are, your sense of importance is, your sense of getting moved by your passions is from. Lay down your will for others. Amen.